I'm Matsudiso, a musician, songwriter, producer and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. There are some conversations that linger, like a meal that reminds you not only of the food you ate, but the people you shared it with, or a fragrance that triggers a memory. I have that with sunscreen. It always transports me to being on holiday. I was speaking with an artist friend of mine about our need to be inspired. It's the engine of our creativity. And because of that, I like to create moments or find beauty in moments, almost like a well of memory to draw from. And I have some favourite moments. London in the summertime, spending all afternoon in the park with friends, cycling home around 9.30pm, the sky this velvety inky indigo colour, the breeze rushing past my ears. The light in Johannesburg before midday, it's this crystalline light, as if to remind you that anything is possible. Coffee first thing in the morning, quiet with my thoughts, being around children who remind me to keep it simple and look for the wonder. What's any of this got to do with today's interview, you may ask? Well, everything. Speaking to South African photographer and director Justice Mukeli was for me another one of those moments of creating memory. It's, uh, it was a lot harder 10 years ago for Yotebucho Matlaatsi and Dumsani Pagaatsi and all the older black generation film directors to be trusted, you know, because they were smeared by this idea of incompetence right so when i do my work and put myself out to the world i make sure that i am professional i make sure that the work i do is world class i will make sure that my work has no face it's not good enough for a black person it's good enough for a director i first came across justice's work about seven years ago through his blog i see a different you a site dedicated to showing South African youth style through the lens of the people who wore the clothes, a way of reframing a traditional South African narrative. We talk about his journey into photography and directing, about his beautiful, art-filled, richly creative childhood, about honouring the legacy of those who paved the way during the apartheid struggle, furthering the next generation of artists, and to put it in Justice's words, art as a way to archive emotion. The ideas I have most of the time are based on um, emotions of a experience that I want to capture because sometimes 
my lived experiences are things I can't articulate with words, you know. As a songwriter, I write from the images I see in my mind until the words and the images weave in and out of each other. Many times during this interview, Justice describes an event or a childhood memory that flooded my mind with pictures. There were a number of times during our conversation where I just wanted to stop and reflect on what he had said, but remembered I was conducting an interview. I know I'm being particularly effusive about this guest, but I found it to be a truly special conversation. I think listening to Justice speak, you'll see what I mean. Justice, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thank you. I actually, I realised, because I was thinking about how, when I first discovered your work, was actually from I See a Different You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My brothers. We, we, we were a collective. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the three of us, my twin brother and Vuyom Panja. And yeah, and we were doing photography um, and more, just around the idea of uh, changing perceptions about changing the narrative of uh, Africa to the continent, you know, mm-hmm. because we thought that uh, we realized that um, our stories were not being told by us, and the stories that were being told of us were not the story that we were familiar with. So we thought it is important that we tell these narratives and these stories from our own point of view. And that's what we were doing at I See a Different Jew. And still, what I do personally in my capacity now that I'm independent, um, it's in the same breath, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I know you as a photographer, director, but take us back. Tell us how you started. Who are you and why? Why do you do what yeah, you yeah. do? <laughs> um, yeah, so for me, I started... When I was very young, um, I believe it was maybe just before, or just in primary school, because um, my mom is an artist. She she's an all-round artist, you know, but not conventional. She's not a painter, but uh, in all the work she does, she's very artistic. She used to bake and make cakes to sell in the community, but she baked and made cakes that looked different and her recipes were very creative so that her products stood out, right? And uh, my dad was a truck driver, but in, um, in my upbringing, growing up in the house, he, I remember when we were young in primary school and my dad, we were sitting with my dad, my twin brother and I listening to jazz because that's what we enjoyed doing with him. And he drew the three of us sitting watching a blue note record you know oh, and in that moment when i when i when i saw that uh, i was so blown away at how realistic the drawing was that my dad made and it indirectly instilled a confidence in me and a belief in me that if my dad can do it i can do it and i remember going back to school with so much confidence that if we've, if we've got any uh, exercises at school where you have to draw something like in biology or geography, you know, I'm so confident that my drawings are definitely going to be better than everyone's drawings because I've got this from my dad, you know. Love and 
Yeah, so I grew up, that was my first um, conscious experience of art. And I took that and my twin brother and I started drawing a lot. And whilst we were drawing a lot, you know, um, my father left when we were 15 and we, my mom was unemployed. So we needed to have creative ways to help my mom mm. support us. So we started an IT business, sort of. And my twin brother and I, we used to fix people's computers and we came up with creative ways, wow. which were not, which I'm not so proud of now, you know, because <laughs> we found this virus called Win32 and we'd install it on people's computers. And after 32 days, the computer would crash and it would have to come back no for way. another service for 150 rand. So we found this way to have to generate money uh, consistently monthly, which I'm not proud of, but it was just the creative solution as a 15 year old at that time. And um, in that time when we were doing that, we met this guy who's an amazing artist still, uh, and he brought his computer for us to fix. And it had these programs in it, it had like Illustrator, no, it had a freehand Photoshop and a lot of other softwares that are for design. And he had these digital drawings and we were so blown away at what this guy was doing with the computer, you know. And that was our first introduction to design. Then we obviously stole his programs and his drawings and we learned how to draw through redrawing his drawings. And he later became our mentor. We got into graffiti, you know, which was amazing. And graffiti got us into typography and typography got us into like really loving design. And we built a portfolio as graphic designers, you know. And in that time, I was making music, making beats, mixtapes, producing, you know. And we were doing all that for a lot of rappers, you know, that later became big and popular. Um, then anyway, we had to, we, we met our other mentor who helped us, who said we need to focus because we were doing a lot of things at the time, you know. And yeah, we focused on design and that helped us build a portfolio that got my brother and I an internship into advertising as designers. Then when we wow. got into advertising as designers, and we didn't go to school for that. It was just self-taught and the play we were doing when we were young, you know. So we got into advertising, I think uh, we were 22, but we have had seven years experience of design and a portfolio. Um, the, uh, so we didn't need to go to AAA because when we were in the studio with all the other interns that came from these prestigious design schools, we were as good, if not better, you wow. know. So yeah, then advertising introduced uh, us to photography because we switched from design into art direction because art direction, you work with ideas rather than the implementation of the idea. And when we came up with these ideas, uh, well, we found that that's the better place to be, you know, so we, shifted to art direction and we worked on campaigns and when you come up when you work on a campaign you have to brief a photographer or a director 
And when you brief a photographer or a director, you see the project through. And that's where the interest started of photography. And we thought, um, we realized that to the world, South Africa is not represented through fashion, in fashion, right? So we wanted to create a blog that will focus on South African fashion, you know, reimagined by the young. Because growing up in Soweto, a lot of um, the older guys, like my father, uncles, you know, and all the older generation really dressed well, you know? And that fashion was not represented and captured to represent South Africa to the world. And I remember myself, my brother and Vuyo and Ongama decided that, no man, we need to do this blog where we put ourselves in front of the camera, dressed up the way we saw our parents and our elders dress up, you know. Yes, we're going to have a rendition of our own, but yeah, that's what we, we started doing. That's how photography came. Then when that came, I realized the power of photography through telling that narrative of of what we are and who we are to the world. And I realized that there are a lot more other stories that are not being told, right, beyond fashion. And for me, the shift happened there, you know, that um, the Soweto I grew up in, when I Google on the internet, images I find of it are not images that entirely represent my experience of it and the images i find are true sure you know like the uprising if not a lot of journalist images of starving kids and kwashioka and all those things that are not our reality mm-hmm. you know it's that so we thought uh we should start telling stories that are what we know you know mm-hmm. and our experiences you know because we grew, I grew up, you know, experiencing love, you know, experiencing uh, having fun, play, doing somersaults all day, you know, and my upbringing was beautiful. And the story that it was being told of where I come from was not true to my experience. So we thought, okay, that's what we need to do. And that's how it all started. I love so many things about what you said. Um, when I think about South Africa or well, Joburg and fashion, I don't, I've never been anywhere where like Joburg sartorial like awesomeness is just off the charts. People are so, so creative, so dynamic. And often I know we often think of, you know, the sapeur in the Congo. Mm-hmm. But like young Joe Burgers, you see them on Saturday at Neighbor Goods or Maboneng on a Sunday. I've never seen anything like it. But mm-hmm. also what I love, and I discovered you guys, like I say, was through on Tumblr, was through yeah, I yeah. see it you, and I just loved your images. But the other thing mm-hmm. I love so much about what you're saying is, um, you know, about representing us with all our humanity and I think sometimes we you know Africa generally but South Africa in this case specifically it tends to Mm. be this narrow thing you know you said well how you grew up was beautiful you had a beautiful childhood and that that makes me so Mm. happy to hear and it's why it's so important to 
tell our stories but I want to talk about your photography because I was yeah. looking through it you know obviously to prepare for this and your your yeah, yeah. your work some of the most beautiful things I've ever seen and I was trying to think about how can I describe this to people you know who haven't seen it and I know they'll go and look yeah. but there is there is a richness to it there's a depth to it there's I can see that you've really thought about what you're taking it's not just any old picture but yeah. I think thank you but I think what you're talking about when you speak about this beauty and the beauty I can see it's just beautiful so tell me about your process how you how you photograph and 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 you know yeah some of your process yeah. behind photographing yeah yeah um my process in photography is mo mostly um emotion you know I look for emotion over uh, aesthetic you know, and sure, some of my images are aesthetically pleasing and technically pleasing, but I think what leads personally for me is the emotion, you know, and in, for example, um, I may have an idea and the idea, the ideas I have most of the time are based on um, emotions of experience that I want to capture because sometimes uh, my lived experiences are things I can't articulate with words, you know. Wow. So what I do, I look into photography or I look into the film work I make um, to capture those feelings and emotions, you know, and that sensitivity around some things that I was feel feeling so that if I capture it in a photograph or in a moving picture, uh, it's a form of archiving that feeling and it gives me access to kind of unpack and unpack it and also unpack it in a therapeutic way for me, you know? So yeah, that, but the process for me in the work I make is emotion you know it's it's an emotional interrogation that's happening inside of me oh know? I love that gosh I love that and I noticed actually because I was trying to I was looking at some of your images um yeah. the stuff that you've done in Tanzania the Tanzania portrait series just gorgeous mm -hmm. this the surfer boy in Nigeria but do you yeah. tend to use a lot of film like I, you used like Ilfa Delta. That's I know that's black and white, and you use yeah, Hasselblad. Yeah. So are yeah, you yeah. now? Do you not use digital, and you just use film now? Like, tell me a bit about that. No. So for me, I use all cameras, you know, and all cameras. That that includes my cell phone. Um, I just think that sometimes, if I've got an idea, if I've got something planned, the first thing I ask myself is, which tool is best to tell this story, you know. Um, then sometimes I find that film is better for what I'm trying to create because the aesthetic will enhance the emotion I'm after, you know. Then also there are a lot of contributing factors, like uh, I do shoot on digital a lot, and I love shooting on digital because my choice of choosing a digital camera mostly is if um, I've got um, constraints, like for example, when I went to 
Tanzania in December. Uh, and first of all, it was a holiday for me and my partner. And with that holiday, uh, we had spoken about me creating work out there, right? So I needed to take a tool that would enable me to work faster so that when I get maybe the two hours to go create what I need to create, it won't take me four hours, you know, so that I'm mindful of the time I need to spend with my partner, you know. And digital, for me, is a lot quicker, mm. you know, than film is a lot more technical and slower. So um, I needed a quicker tool so that, you know, when I go out there to create, I'm able to create magic in like five minutes, whereas with the with the film camera, the magic I can create in five minutes needs an hour, you know. Right. And yeah, so it's all those things. And I don't, I don't have a, a preference per se. I think I, I prefer a specific tool based on what's needed for the project, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay. And so I know you do a mixture of, um, you know, you do portraiture, like you've, you've, you photograph artists, Shoma Jodzi, Jojo Abbott, you know, I know you've done yeah. the Arts Come First guys, but you also yeah, yeah. have moved into directing and yeah, yeah. your Blick Bassey video is really, really beautiful. And, and at risk, I, I know artists don't like being compared to, and I, and I understand, and I say that as an artist, I don't like being compared to, but what it reminded me of, um, do you remember that old um, Janet Jackson video, Got Till It's Gone? Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. Someone said that, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. But, but they were, in that video, they were referencing, I think, Malik Sadibe, the photographer yes, in Senegal. The the Senegalese. Photographer. No, the, he's from Mali, isn't he, the, that photographer? But But I want you to talk to me about how you sort of shifted or added directing writing and directing into your work as well yeah uh for me directing happened to me it wasn't something i was pursuing um it's actually a beautiful thing how it happened i I was busy with my photography whilst i was working in advertising and at the time i was working towards um saving enough money to leave my job and be independent, you know, and be be a full-time photographer. So whilst I was in that journey, um, this lady named Lizelle, who is an amazing film researcher for our advertising industry, sent me a message on Facebook and told me that she really loves my work and she has a friend who's interested in working with um, young a young talented guy and she thinks i would be the right person and she didn't tell me what this was you know then i was okay cool then she said when the time is right you'll let me know and i said okay then she contacted me again maybe after a month and said yeah the guy is interested to um, work with someone who could be a young film director um then i thought to myself sure I've never even thought of being a film director. Yes, I've shot a lot of commercials as a creative in the advertising industry, but not as a director. 
Then anyway, I meet, I meet up with this guy, Neil Roberts. And yeah, he tells me that he wants to start a company and he's looking for young talent he can work with as a director. And Lizelle spoke highly of me and he's met other guys as well. And he feels like I'm the right person to go with. And I just rolled with it. I said, okay, cool, let's see. But this this meant that I had to leave my job and go be a director full time. And I went to my boss who was my friend at the time and I said, I'm resigning, you know. And he was like, what do you mean, you know? And I said, yeah, I'm resigning. I got this opportunity to go try myself out as a director for a year. Uh, it's secure, you know, I can earn the same money I'm earning, but trying something new, you know. And he said to me, how the hell are you going to be a director when you can't even write? Have you ever even directed? Have you ever even thought about it, you know? Sure. Obviously, those words were not so encouraging. It was yeah. tough, but I thought to myself, I'm a relatively good enough at directing advertising and my portfolio is solid. So I can go try myself out for a year with Neil. Then um, if it doesn't work out, I'll come back into advertising you know then I said okay dude I'm going end of the month I'm out of here mm. yeah we he wasn't so happy but I had to make the decision it didn't work out that it didn't work out in that year so after the year I jumped back into not advertising we were ready as I see it different due to be a business so I jumped into that and worked on that and I tried to be a director inside I, I see a different you but it was tough because we were not getting the right projects you know or enough projects because we we were not a reputable um, film production company so the opportunities didn't come as well as I hoped they would you know but I shot a few things when I was with my brothers then I decided two and a half years ago that okay i think i really love directing and that's what i want to pursue you know i spoke to the guys i said okay i'm gonna bow out i feel like it's time for me to pursue my own journey we've had a beautiful journey as a collective no love lost um yeah so i made the jump and i joined um a, a production company named ola films and i worked with them then a production company i'm working with right now which are really amazing for me um bomb they had hunted me and they called me and i joined them and that's where the bleak bussy film happened yeah. i see i see <clears throat> that's really so that that was the journey yeah, yeah. i see and tell me what informs or inspires your work? Um, to be honest, my biggest creative resource is emotions. You know, I'm a very emotional person. I'm very sensitive. So that feeds, that is the fuel for a lot of my creative. But um, part of the things that inform my creativity And what I do is the history of our country, right? And I've always felt that there are people before us that put their lives on their line 
that lost their lives for us to live. Mm. And it is our duty to take that baton that they, they left for us or they passed on to us and move it forward in whatever we do, you know, in whatever industry you work in, you know, because being an artist um, doesn't mean that I cannot have um, input in moving our culture forward. Mm. You know, being an engineer doesn't mean that you won't have input in moving forward our culture, you know, and in all aspects of any industries, we've got finance, drama, arts, all everything. I feel that we have this important task to take what our predecessors, if that's the right word, mm. have passed on to us and move it forward for the next generation. Because I always think that before us, in the times of Biko, uh, Sibuque, you know, Chris Hani, Mandela, there, there wasn't as much access to the world as we have, right? But they were heard, you know, and they were seen, and they made a mark, right? Mm -hmm. And in the generation that I live in, we have so much access through the internet. I mean, you are all the way in the UK, I'm here, and we are having a, a simple dialogue that's, mm. that feels like we are sitting across the room each other, right? And that's the access the generations before us didn't have. Mm. But they were able to move the culture forward, you know, move uh, us from one point of the struggle to the next point of the struggle. Mm. And that is that informs a lot of my work because I don't want to be complacent i don't want to to take things easy because uh what's before us is very important there's something as simple as as being a black body in all sectors of the industry means that you have to prove yourself twice mm. right because we are smeared by the idea of black people are not competent, black people are not professional. They will never get it done. You cannot trust them. You know, there's all those things that are huge drawbacks mm. for us in every space we need to occupy, you know. As a film director in this industry, as a black guy, it's uh, it was a lot harder 10 years ago for your Tebuho and and all the older black generation film directors to be trusted, you know, because they were smeared by this idea of incompetence, right? So when I do my work and put myself out to the world, I make sure that I am professional. I make sure that the work I do is world-class. I will make sure that my work has no face. It's not good enough for a black person. It's good enough for a director. Before you even look at my skin color, before you even hear where I'm from, you know. So that's that's what informs my work. My work needs to speak in the same volume mm. and quality as any work that's being done in Europe or in America, or in Hollywood, if not more, you know.
Your words are so powerful for many reasons. Um, and I, I think, well, I've got, I've got multiple questions, but my first question yeah. is, sure. um, you talked about moving the culture forward. What does yeah. it look like for South African culture and, and, and the weight of the legacy, you know, the shoulders on, upon which we stand, what does it look like to move it forward? Um, for me, moving it forward is creating access in a way that by being myself authentically and professionally uh, inspire a lot of other kids that come from where I come from. Mm. Being myself and putting myself out there the way I do makes it possible for those that thought it was impossible. You know, for me, that is, that's what moving the culture looks like. Helping more kids that are my skin color, that are from Soweto, that didn't get the education, that didn't get the opportunities, be able to see themselves in these opportunities. And if they can see themselves in these opportunities, it will be possible for them to pursue it. You know, because, you know, there's an expression that says you can go as far as your experience or you can go as far as your eyes can see. But I think you can go as far as your experience and it's more. Actually, they both work because growing up, I remember I grew up in, in a neighborhood called Pinville and in Zone 4 to be specific. And Zone 4 is like um, the bottom theater of the whole neighborhood. Because uh, Pinville is a is a is a suburb basically in Soweto, you know, uh, but Zone Four specifically is the rural part of Pinville. Mm -hmm. So it was like a little bubble, right? And I grew up in that little bubble without getting out of that bubble. So my life and experiences and everything was just inside of that bubble. And when we when we would get out of that bubble, it was to go to maybe a mall and go. I remember going to McDonald's for the first time, I could not comprehend what that was, mm. you know? So coming back to growing up in that bubble, if I didn't break out of that bubble and see more so that I can aspire to different things or I can aspire to different, to higher heights, my reality would have just been in that little bubble I, I come from, you know? So by me being myself and a lot of other young professionals in their respective fields, putting themselves out there, you know, uh, aspiring for more and reaching for more and achieving more is very important because the younger eyes have something to look up to, mm -hmm. you know, and when they've got a bar that we have set to look up to, at least we know that they can get here and move forward. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, that is moving the culture forward. Because if you look at maybe in 94, right, the percentage of black people in positions of power is a lot less than the percentage we've got now of black people in power, mm -hmm. right? Uh, in all the sectors of industries, right? So because other people before that generation in 95, put their lives on the line. They resisted, they pushed, you know, for those opportunities to happen for those that come after them. 
the bar was raised for 95. Then from 95, that generation raised the bar so that the bar that comes for the next next generation is different. You know, so I think for me that is moving it forward. You know, I I I would love for us to see younger, not younger versions of me, but like younger creatives occupying the space that I'm occupying and doing it at a much higher level. Mm. You know, yeah. I do. And I think it's funny, I was talking, I know you work with him, Moteo Moeng. I was talking with him, yeah. our brother. Yeah. Um, I was yeah, talking with him brother, yeah. Yeah, the other day. And one of the things I loved that he said, you know, he said, although he wants to work abroad, he's realised that his one of his most important things for him is that Africa is seen on the global stage. Mm-hmm. And as someone mm-hmm. who sort of has both feet in both places because you know I'm half South African and I'm in South Africa a lot but I also live in the UK I'm Mm -hmm. always interested in you know how Africa yes generally but specifically South Africa are South Africans are telling their stories unapologetically from their perspectives without wanting people to sort of you know, without sort of saying, understand me, think we're amazing. You're just making your stuff. For someone who's inside, because you're in South Africa, what kind of, I, I mean, message is probably the wrong thing, but what are you trying to say through the stuff that you're making as a South African on the global stage? Yeah, uh, for me, the first and most important thing is to say, for my generation, we are ready for different narratives. We are ready for more creative, intellectually dense and nuanced stories that are not only about the struggle. You know, uh, we are, I'm trying to say that the conversation needs to progress from where it was to a different place. You know, we are ready to tell, um, we as a country and creatives and, you know, consumers of these stories and cinema and, you know, art. We are ready to engage other parts of our narratives that couldn't see the light of day because we that we were pressed to share stories and you know uh, the status of the country in the time of our depression and uh, apartheid and all that stuff, which is important. But I feel like right now our generation is ready to tell intellectually dense and nuanced uh, stories of us that are not entirely influenced by what we are known of, you know? Mm-hmm. I love that. So, yeah. I love and it's it's really interesting for me because I, I work with, this is kind of a sidebar, but it's connected. I work with men a lot and I've worked mm-hmm. with, you know, South African men a lot. And I think part of my desire to see people just generally humanized is that, we're not on the one end, like either demonized or sainted on the other mm. pers- perspective, but we're just people. And the South African men that I know, the word that keeps coming back to me, even as you've been talking, is there's so much tenderness, even you see mm-hmm. it in your work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's even you. so much tenderness in how you're mm. articulating South Africa, being South African, making what you make. And, and I personally, want to see more of those stories you know that even that men aren't always these sort of hyper masculine hyper virile Mm. 
almost mm. animalistic people but actually full mm. of nuance like everybody is else is and full yeah. of like like I say tenderness is the word that keeps coming to mind yeah 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 I love that because I think just to add to the little points I was saying and to your point um it's interesting to move the conversation forward because and in the, regards to the stories we are telling I mean I would love to share or hear or see stories of what does sexuality looks like in South Africa? You know, what is, what are our gender, you know, uh, differences and issues and what are the stories within there? You know, what does um, masculinity means post-apartheid? Because it meant something different during, you know. Um, what does um, patriarchy look like? You know, how can we dismantle that, you know? How, I mean, there are a lot more intellectually dense, nuanced um, narratives that we could speak to, you know, um, as a country or as, as a whole industry in the arts, you know, that we could unpack rather than um, unpack what the stories that have been told over and over and over and over, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, we, we are very interesting as a country, and I, I find that, especially now, uh, there's a huge revolution happening in sexuality in our country, you know, which is so beautiful because if I look 10 years back, you know, I didn't have as many uh, interesting, interesting gender different people in my life, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and I say different because I, I'm trying to be inclusive of everyone. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not saying being heterosexual or being male, identifying as male or female, you know, different or being an other sexually mm -hmm. is, is, was different 10 years ago to how it is now. And I find that revolution, revolution happening so amazing because one of the most important voices that are emerging now are uh, sexually other, you know, they, mm -hmm. they are LGBTQ or, you know, and that's powerful, you know, mm -hmm. that's a revolution in its own, you know, because at the time when our country was going through apartheid and all, and a, li a little bit after post-apartheid, there was no room to engage mm -hmm. those issues, you know, there was no room to yeah, to be seen if you mm. were that, you know, because you had, we were still dealing with manning up, we we're still dealing with a lot of issues that we faced as a, as, as a country, you know. But yeah, I mean, where are those stories that are unpacking what's happening right now, the sexual revolution, you know, mm. which is amazing, you know, uh, and yeah, it's a gold mine for for us to tell these stories to the world because our point of view of our experiences and of our revolution or revolutions that are happening are interesting because it's it's a different lens, you know. Mm. Yes, it happened in America, maybe in the 80s. Mm -hmm. They had a huge sexual revolution, but their version of that can't be the same as ours. Absolutely. You know? 
Yeah, so I, I, those are things I'm interested in, you know. Those are, I'm interested in seeing what being a heterosexual man means if there isn't any pressure that's predetermined by society. Because when I grew up, everything I was being told was that you can't be gay, you can't be, you can't be this. But now the, you, we can argue that there's a little bit of freedom of choice because mm-hmm. you've got a bigger community to go to if you are that, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a whole conversation on its own that. It really, it really is. And it's funny, I'm, I'm literally at the moment doing this project on uh, masculinity and I've been interviewing loads and loads and loads of men about how they view themselves and so all this stuff for me is fascinating oh, um yeah but tell me i i i've rephrasing this question because i normally say what mistakes have you made that we could learn from but I, instead of mistakes i want to say mm. what are some of the lessons you have learned that we could learn mm. from sure the biggest lesson i learned was um thinking i've got time you know, and thinking I've got time in the sense that I always thought that ah, it will happen. You know, it will happen to me. It's gone. It will come. You know, I never felt the need to pursue my interests, mm-hmm. um, which is weird in its own sense because I, I'm kind of seen as someone who's like a go-getter. You know, you, I go hard at what I want. But I feel like in my journey of becoming what I'm becoming and what I've become, I was, I felt like there's time and there isn't time, you know. Um, I've got a very good friend of mine uh, who owns a gallery and is an artist as well. And he's only 25, mm-hmm. you know, at 25, that's 10 years ago for me, at 25, I was chilled, you know, I was like, I was waiting for things to happen to me, Mm. you know, and I feel that is the biggest lesson, you know, for me that you cannot wait for things to happen to you, you need to pursue them, Mm. you know, you need to put the effort, you need to, you know, you make sure that all your wishes manifest by putting in the work, you know, and the other lesson was that I've always known that I am who I've become you know but when I knew that I am this person I didn't act on it I didn't listen to myself I didn't listen to my inner voice you know growing up you know I always numbed it you know I always thought uh, there's a better way of being Mm -hmm. than who I actually am you know, and I obviously pursued the other thing, which I thought was was better than what I actually am, you know. And yeah, I think growth and surrounding myself with the right people gave me the confidence to be unapologetically me, mm-hmm. you know, because in my journey of growing, there was, I would fall under social pressure, you know, of drinking, you know, partying a lot. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know, everyone should, can drink and party. But those were things I didn't personally enjoy, you know. Uh, you know, I never really li- liked eating meat from when I was a child, mm-hmm. you know. 
but I ate it because it's a symbol of sometimes wealth and it's also a symbol of you know if food if food doesn't have meat it's not delicious you know and anyway there, it's a whole thing on its own then two years three years ago then I listened to myself what my spirit wants and my spirit didn't want to eat meat then I don't eat meat you know and I'm fine I'm healthy I don't even go through these programs of how much protein I need and Um, I just eat everything as I ate when I was eating meat. I just don't have the meat in it. Mm-hmm. You know? Those are good, good lessons. Be yourself. Be yourself and go Be get yourself. it. Yeah? Unapologetically, you know. Mm-hmm. And don't wait. Yeah. You know? That's, that's very good. One. So I like to end every podcast with the same question. What music are you listening to at the moment? <sighs> I'm listening to Melody's Phony and Dodge. It's really amazing. Okay. Um, I'm listening to an artist called, he's actually my favorite musician, Home Shade. Okay. It's amazing. Uh, I'm listening to Justice Star. Uh, yeah, I think I listen to Home Shade more than any other okay. artist. Thank you. I love discovering new music. All oh, that's just my favorite thing. <laughs> yeah, new music is amazing, man. Well, listen, right. Justice. Thank you so yeah. much for your time. I have I, that that has been a very it's been a very moving conversation for me actually. Very moving and reflective. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank so, you. thank you very much. You take care. Huh? Sure. Take care as well. Thank you so much to Justice McKelly. This interview made me homesick for South Africa. It also reminded me of how grateful I am for the creative men I know, who are so deeply feeling, so deeply thinking, and those qualities can't help but translate into their work. So go check out Justice's work on his website, follow him on social media, details of which are in the blurb below. And by now, you know the drill. Share, like, subscribe to the podcast on the SoundCloud and Insta platforms at holding up the ladder, hashtag H-U-T-L. Next week, I'm joined by poet, essayist and African feminist Jessica Horn. I always say that your activism is not effective unless you're getting in trouble, because the point is that you are challenging systems of power. And if those systems of power can't feel your challenge, they won't respond. Until next time.